welcome to the show. Uh, it's Matt and Sasha today. Um, we have a kind of cool special episode for you because we're not going to talk too much about movies on this one. We're just going to kind of hang out and talk about some stuff that's been going on in the news, catch up with each other. Uh, I was at a, a PowerPoint party yesterday and everyone, the idea was you got like 30 people together and they all prepare PowerPoint slides for about five minutes, like three to five minutes of content about at literally anything mm-hmm. you want. Uh, I talked about optimal strategy for losing at Settlers of Catan, but like in a way that you could defend later. And um, anyway, this one guy was there uh, from Germany and he's like an audio engineer. It was fascinating to listen to him talk about his work because he was like, what I like to do is to listen to rooms. <laughs> and sometimes, of course, there, is, there will be an orchestra or something playing in the room, but really what you are hearing is the room. And then he was like, I will now do the video component of my presentation. And he had a, a video of him standing in an empty room. He was like, this room is reverberant. And then it cuts to him in a slightly different room with like some, some hangings on the walls. He's like, this room is not reverberant. Did it, was the third room he cut to like one of the rooms from Silent Hill? Did he need like a key to enter? <laughs> this room is behind a, a, a bas relief into which you must insert an orb and also a crest. <laughs> this is a typical way to get into your garage in Germany. I think it's really cool that you got to have a, um, a PowerPoint party with Werner Herzog. That's something that I've always, always wished I I could experience. Yeah, I was reading the Wikipedia page for Germany, and I was surprised to learn that Germany only has one citizen, which is Werner Herzog. (laughs) (laughs) And he has, like, a stage persona and uh, Merkel, right? And that's, like, but basically it's just him, and he's sort of, like, doing the... Like the episode of um, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman when they're in the fort and they're under attack and they what they do is they like have only one rifle, but they keep running to different spots to fire. So it looks like there's more people. So it is with Germany where like Werner Herzog just runs from desk to desk, placing calls and like writing posts and stuff and having parliamentary hearings. But it's just him. The rest of Germany are all NPCs to kind of create the fiction. Right. Of that. It's a populous country with an economy and. Uh, you know, music and culture and all of that stuff. But it's really just the one citizen for her uh, When you say NPC here, do you mean, like, are you implying life itself is a video game and Germany is populated by AI? Are you saying Werner Herzog has written bots? Or do you mean, like, they're, they're physically, they're humans, but they're using, like, the alt-right meaning of NPC to mean that they don't have original thoughts? Or what, are, <laughs> what, are, what exactly am I signing on for if I well, continue talking to you is what I'm trying to find out? Sure, sure. We could go deeper into the contract of what you're about to agree to. Um, <laughs> oh, good. Well, this, that, that lead-in puts me at rest right off the bat. When you phrase it like that, I'm way less concerned. Uh, I meant that they were uh, non, non-player citizens. Because there's only one citizen of Germany, which is Werner Herzog. And when I mean citizen, I mean the Starship Troopers definition. <laughs> oh, oh, the Robert Heinlein uh, proto-fascist. If you're in the military, you're a citizen. Otherwise, you're a useless yeah. mouth to feed. So, wow. If Germany were an elaborate scam being perpetuated by Werner Herzog to pretend the country is populated with real people, when in reality, they're all non-productive actors... And only Werner Herzog alone is sustaining the entire GDP of Germany in that universe with its two-tiered system of citizenship based on Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers. Then that would be proto-fascist, or are we not even saying that? <laughs> we're never. We're. I am not confirming nor denying. But uh, I was going to ask you what because uh, you, you mentioned you mentioned that PowerPoint party you went to, and you said that your PowerPoint presentation was on your theory of how to 
lose bigly yes. at Settlers of Catan, but in a way where you could boast about it later. What yeah. what is that theory? It's better with uh, my my uh, a slide deck about of, of theoretical board states. Well, let me lead in by first saying that the hypothetical listener of this has probably played or heard of Settlers of Catan, and like me, that person hates Settlers of Catan <laughs> intensely and associates it with bad memories. Because of course you do. Settlers of Catan was was way better than like Monopoly and Sorry and Scrabble and stuff when it came out and was for many people like the window into the idea that a board game could could actually be a bunch of engaging decisions. But objectively, by modern standards, it hasn't held up and it's sold out. And the theme is kind of problematic. It has a lot of stuff going against it. So I'm going to get that out of the way. Housekeeping. Okay. Settlers of Catan. Let's say you're in this state, Matt. Let me keep this real simple. Mm -hmm. You've got two other players, okay? Player A, they're set up heavily on on a good little territory that's on the number six. So in Settlers of Catan, you roll the dice every turn. If your number hits, you get stuff. So player one, they, they're, they've got two houses on a six. So when a six comes up, they get two things. Player two, they've got two houses on the eight. Eight's the other good number. So those six and eight, they come up a lot. That's prime real estate. So one guy's got two things on six. One guy's got two things on eight. Now it's your turn to pick where you're going to you know, put your stuff. What number do you want to cover? You got three choices, let's say, in this game. You can put one thing on the six and one thing on the eight so that no matter what happens between those two, you're getting a piece of the action. That sounds pretty good. And those are the two best numbers. Your other alternative is there's an open spot no one's using on a five. And you could put both of yours on the five. Now, in Settlers, a five is worse. You, you, get, you add up two dice and a five is less probable. So six and eight, that's the hot real estate. Those come up more often. Five, less often. If you ask most players, they would say, oh, well, put one on each. Not only are those the two best numbers, I get more per dice roll on average. So what most people would do is like, if one guy's all in on six and one guy's all in on eight, you want to spread out. And I've seen very smart people argue this. You want to spread out so that you get paid no matter what comes up. And you'd put it on the six and the eight. Everybody would. You're playing a coin flip game, okay? There's going to be three players in this game. So the game is real simple. We flip a coin and people get points based on what came up. So the three players who are going to be in the game are the heads player. If it comes up heads, they get two points. Otherwise, nothing. The tails player, if it comes up tails, they get two points. Otherwise, nothing. And the third spot is the guaranteed player. And the guaranteed player, no matter what comes up, they get 1.1 points. So they they get paid no matter what. If I said, we're going to flip coins over and over until somebody gets to 10 points, that player is the winner. Uh, And there's going to be one of each of those three. But... It's your birthday. You get to pick who you want to be. Which of those three spots do you like? Do you want to be the heads player, tails player, or guaranteed? Guaranteed player, right? Then right. You're, then you're guaranteed citizenship. You're, you're guaranteed. <laughs> citizenship is guaranteed if you serve in the mobile infantry. Yes, that's correct. Um, <laughs> the, the settlers it, of Catan wheat infantry. Right. So so uh, not only is guaranteed player, you don't have like a, a the possibility of getting zero points from a string of bad luck, which heads and tails do. Not only that, the average points per flip for heads is one because you got 50-50 chance of two mm-hmm. or zero. The other guy's got 50-50 chance of two or zero. So the average is one point. Uh, but for the guaranteed player, the average is 1.1. So they're actually also getting the most points per turn. Uh, you can't lose. Now, mathematically, if you're going to play this game first to 10 wins, who? what do you think are the odds of winning for the three different strategies? Well, okay, hang on. So the guaranteed player would have the greatest odds of winning right yeah because they're getting more points per turn right right do you know what the guaranteed players odds of winning are if you do the math zero percent it is logically impossible you cannot literally possibly win as guaranteed player 
even though you get the most points per turn on average, you can never ever win because any series of flips is going to involve either heads or tails right. getting to 10 ahead of you. So if even if you get, what you want is even split of heads and tails, so neither wins. But even if you go to uh, four and four, which is going to put each of them at eight points, you're still at 8.8. On the next flip, no matter what, heads or tails is going to win and you're going to end up at 9.9 and get second place. You can't possibly ever finish last. It's always heads or tails is always going to be last place. You're always going to be second and you're always going to be like, "Oh man, I was pretty close. You know what? Next time if it comes up a little better, maybe I'll win." But you'd realize in the coin flip game that's impossible. But now go back to your Settlers of Catan example. You took the 6 and the 8, which are the best numbers, and you're going to lose every game. But every game, you're going to be probably in second place. You're going to think, oh, man, I was real close. I almost had it. Yes. And you're going to do that for years. You're going to waste your fucking (laughs) life chasing this second place, second place guaranteeing strategy. Um, I actually think there's a lot more to it than that. And of course, it's I'm oversimplifying in Settlers. You don't just get a point. You get like wheat and sheep and you can like fuck the sheep and trade it to the robber. There's all kinds of reasons you might care about different resources and you want them to not come in in big chunks. But the basic premise is like, it's not always better to minimize your risk. If there's Hmm. a lot of players, you need to take big risks to be in first place. And Catan is sort of like that experience you're describing is kind of like uh, playing in some type of a casino where the house always wins. And... uh... Funny to <laughs> funny to mention that because it sort of feels like it's kind of applicable to something that was uh, big in the news this week that uh, I know that both of us have been in our own way following and have some familiarity with. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to talk about this thing because I sort of fell down a hole this week and got really, really into this. I would have never guessed that me of all people would have discovered something happening online and then get really, really obsessed with it. Well, also, you texted me all those photos of you uh, <laughs> getting a tattoo on your ass of the stock ticker for GameStop. It sucks, too, because each day I have to go back to the tattoo parlor and get it slightly readjusted <laughs> to fit what the almighty line is doing. I don't know how bad the quarantine like lockdown restrictions are imposed by the government where you are, but like here, they're very serious. You're only supposed to go to the—they said the grocery store, essential health visits— and stock market related tattoos were the only three things you can leave your house for. Yeah, uh, things are a little bit more lax in New York, number one city in the world, where um, where there are no guidelines, baby. There are no rules here. You can go get tattoos of whatever you want. All Sorry, the time. do you just say New York, number one city in the world every time you say New York? Sort of like a like you, I'm getting a bit of a Borat <laughs> vibe from this. <laughs> you ha- that's the uh, proper name, the legal name for it. Like on your driver's license, it says New York, number one in the world, baby. Comma, baby. Like the same way there's a comma after your, your first and last name. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, let's do a little, uh, I mean, I'm sure most of the people listening probably have some idea of what's happened, but maybe we could do a little, do, do a little recap of uh, what, what, it, what yeah. exactly is going on. And because I don't follow this, the, uh, the stonks as closely as some people might. Yeah, you're only, you're only getting it tattooed onto your, onto your lower back every day as it goes and, and texting me about it every day. But no, you don't follow it at all. <laughs> no, I, I have very little interest in it. I have no investments. Uh, I make, I make uh, good, <laughs> good financial decisions like cashing out my Roth IRA and putting it all on AMC. Uh, it can go nowhere but up. Let's, bef- before you start, let me just open with saying neither of us are financial professionals and Nothing we're about to say constitutes financial advice. 
And uh, frankly, if you thought it did, you'd, you'd be very <laughs> stupid. I want to get that crystal clear. I would like to extend that to almost anything we've ever said ever on this show. Right. If you listened to our Ninja Turtles episode and thought, well, that's kind of interesting that that how, uh, you know, it ties into the war on drugs or George W. Bush or anything like that. But that's all bullshit. I made that all up. Uh, there's no such person as George H.W. Bush. There's <laughs> never a Ninja Turtles movie. This is all a big lie. This is all part of the simulation. It was all backstory created by Herzog to perpetuate his illusion, his elaborate house of <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire style house of cards. He's been keeping up for these, low these many years. Yeah. <laughs> so with that being said, um, let's start at the beginning. Let's start, let's start uh, way back in the, in the prologue to this. You told me about this thread on Reddit uh, many years ago that you thought was very funny. And uh, that thread is called wall street bets. It's a subreddit, not a thread. Uh, just so that the, the generation Z kids do not like, yes, I don't know. I don't know anything about the internet using the wrong terminology. <laughs> you know, you sound like, like <laughs> my, my dad being calling every game console a Nintendo when you say oh, there was a thread. So let me just get this straight that someone uh, posted, made a post to their, to, to their Facebook wall uh, <laughs> about financial advice. It blew up on ICQ. People started changing their MSN Messenger <laughs> names for, uh, from corn lyrics to different stock advice. I think that's, I think that's what happened. <laughs> so yes, there was a subreddit uh, called Wall Street Bets that, you, that you've put on my radar for many, many years. And, and I thought it was quite funny to start hearing about this. Uh, what's Wall Street Bets? So because I'm, I'm a cool dude, I love personal finance, and I was really into the different subreddits that are about personal finance, like r slash investing. And those places are all fine, but they're, they're, they tend to be quite dull because most good financial advice can be written in like three paragraphs. Honestly, everything you need to know to be successful is like have surplus income, put it in uh, at index funds, wait a long time. There's not a lot to talk about, and people tend to be very dry. Wall Street Bets is kind of like the opposite. I get the energy that back in those days, two or three years ago, it was primarily young people, a lot of like university students or even teenagers who had a little bit of money and didn't like to take this long view, didn't like the safe view, didn't like the idea that the market is kind of efficient and whatever, you know, if you have some idea about why something will be worth more, that's not really tradable information because someone else already knows that at a Wall Street firm. And if it was worth money, they've already taken it. So Wall Street bets was a place where people made dumb decisions. It had kind of the same energy that once long ago and no longer existed on like 4chan and stuff. It's just sort of like the internet making fun of the rest of the real world, but mostly making fun of themselves. So people on Wall Street Bets would use things like call options and put options, which are very risky, short-term, volatile types of financial instruments that can make you a ton of money. And they loved memes and they loved making fun of themselves. And they had a lot of humor that was not in good taste, uh, which is why I did not like to post there or read most of the threads. <laughs> but there was a kind of wonderful energy and uh, sense of community there that was missing from the other financial subreddits. And what I discovered after a while was that a lot of the posters on Wall Street Bets were not just these young kids taking risks. A lot of them were the straight-laced, buttoned-up accountants and personal finance people and bogleheads, people like me, who would be like, well, take, take your after after income and uh, put it in your your tax-free savings account uh in an index fund 
those kind of people would go to Wall Street bets to blow off steam. And you would catch those same people being like, I'm going to YOLO it all into cryptocurrencies, fellow kids. <laughs> uh, and they, they've had many manias in the past. But one time, one of them found an old AM radio station in like Kentucky or something that was talking about hog futures or something. This was like some sort of agricultural call-in show where the host would get farmers calling in and being like, oh, the hogs are real good this year, JW. They're really going to the moon. And then they they would look at the like commodities market and they would see like lean hogs are in fact going up uh, just as the AM station predicted. And then like later someone would call in and they'd be like, oh, they're bad crop this year. The hogs got the, the hog fever. They're all going down. And then sure enough, it would plummet. So for a while, they were investing based on the oracular insight of this weird AM station and they would all follow it. And then the big meme was like lean hogs. They also got obsessed with this... Uh, junior mining stock called JNUG that traded based <laughs> on the gold dust futures in like the Yukon or something. I, as far as I know, it was run by a time traveling prospector. And so basically for a big time, JNUG was their, their big meme. And they've gone through many such cycles. I'm probably getting a bunch of details wrong about the hog futures thing. That's before my time. And I could only learn of it by like oral tradition from the other Wall Street betsers who aren't the best at accurately relaying past events. Sure, they're unreliable narrators, to say the least. <laughs> they're unreliable narrators. That's a little bit of background on Wall Street bets. And it became very popular when someone figured out a loop to get infinite money out of Robin Hood. And this led to the famous guh video where the guy he's gambled like about 200 times as much money as he has in the world he's betting at all that apple's gonna go down or something and he's live streaming himself in his car and it shoots up to the moon which means in that one second of it going up he just lost like several million dollars and his reaction is just guh and uh the guh heard round the world so so that's a bit of the history of wall street bets and the kind of energy they used to have wall street bets has really rocketed up in its share of the public consciousness recently because these people are in the public eye it drew a lot of new fans of wall street bets and during that time wall street bets went from the indie band no one had heard of to like the big the big show that now is what people think of when they think of finance on reddit um and as a result of it becoming more popular the events on there spread to the wider world much faster and i think that's a big factor of the recent excitement with gamestop which is ticker symbol gme which i'm sure you've seen because right now it is very popular. No, that's a that's a really, really good summation of Wall Street bets. And I also learned a lot of stuff there that I had no idea that I'm absolutely going to look up. Um, especially the hog futures. That's absolutely incredible. And I'm probably going to call the episode hog futures. Sometime we should get the whole story on that lean hogs thing and like make a ballad about it or something. Yeah, the ballad of the lean hogs. Um, a sort of like Arthurian legend passed <laughs> down and reinterpreted. It is said whoever can glean the truth from this AM radio station in Kentucky <laughs> shall be the one true heir of Wall Street bets. <laughs> uh, I was going to make some joke about the sword and the stone about like having to like pull a pull a, a, a put option out of some rock or I don't know. I, I, I'm not quite up enough with the terminology. Whoever can exercise this put option. <laughs> it's it's like one of the worst things in the world where you know you have a good joke in your brain, but you don't have the right vocabulary to synthesize it and have it come out. And like, you're just sitting there looking at this, this golden nugget, this J nug, if you will, that's sitting <laughs> in, your, in your, the front of your brain. Yeah. There, no, there's no worse pain than that for sure. All, all of recorded history is all about that type of pain. The very first cave painting is a caveman who drew like a joke 
And she's a little stick figure reaching up for it and like shrugging like, ah, I can't quit. <laughs> it's a caveman like reaching up for an unobtainable joke and going, gah. <laughs> and also there's like an ox next to him for some reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. You have to set the scene. Um, and speaking of setting the scene. So Wall Street Bets, uh, where does this come in? Why is this so popular? If some of you, perhaps, because we talk about movies on the show a lot, but there was a movie that came out uh, a couple of years ago called The Big Short, which was all about the housing crisis and the way that that happened. Um, it was a popular movie that uh, did a pretty good job of sort of explaining this intentionally opaque terminology, like what shorting a stock is. And Sasha can probably explain this better than I can, so jump in <laughs> if I'm fucking this up. But when you short a stock, it's essentially that a hedge fund is betting against that company doing well. Say that like a company... Uh, they said is they're renting out the option for $10 a share. If that company was to be devalued, those shares would now be worth $3. So when the hedge fund gets them back, they're making a profit on that margin loss. Was that a good ex explanation of shorts? Um, yeah, that's pretty good. I don't know if you need to use the word option there. I don't, okay. I don't know if that's true. In this, in this case, you it would be like you borrow the shares, sell them right away usually, and then you promise to buy them back at some point. And you give them back to whoever lent them to you. So if you if they were worth 100 bucks when you sold them and they were worth 10 bucks when you bought them back, you just made a profit of $90 a share. But yes, your explanation is good. Uh, no, thanks. That's that's um yeah, that's kind of setting the stage because people have started to realize especially since, since the housing crisis, but I think this entire last week has kind of snapped into focus is that shorting is actually the business of Wall Street. That's how a lot of hedge funds and the investment firms that own those hedge funds make money is by intentionally devaluing companies and driving those companies into bankruptcy. One of the many sort of myths of our economic system is that like it's almost like a natural law and that it's not actually, of course, a man-made system that is um, easily manipulated. And so one of, the, one of those myths is the idea of like when a company goes bankrupt, the perspective that a lot of people have is, oh, that just must not have been a profitable company. Very ex famous example of this is Toys R Us, which sadly went bankrupt a couple of years ago, even though the year it went bankrupt, it was actually the most profitable year it had had in, I think, five years or something. Um, hedge funds make a lot of money driving companies intentionally into bankruptcy so that they can make money off of their short selling. But the key thing with GameStop is that they were shorting GameStop to such an insane amount that it was almost like an illegal short. And that's, I think, part of the plot that's been lost a little bit this week with like, you know, oh, it's GameStop, AMC, um, all of this sort of uh, machinations and characters that have kind of happened this week have sort of lost the plot of the formative event that triggered all of this is that a hedge fund called Melvin Capital was shorting GameStop to such an extent that it was like shorted by like 130% or something. It was like beyond what was even like possible or reasonable. But I might be wrong about that. So I might cut that out. No, you're, you're right that their short percentage was uh, very high, like a big percentage of the shares actually out there in the market and over 100%. But I don't believe it's illegal or even impossible to mm. do that, even though you would kind of think it is. Because when you borrow a share and then sell it, which is to short it, you could hypothetically borrow more stock from someone else under a different arrangement and then sell it again. You might, you could sell the same share multiple times if you had to. So you can get to a percent higher than 100 without doing anything illegal, as far as I understand yep. it. It's not only hedge funds, but normal, ordinary people can also uh, do short sales. Uh, I've never done it, but you can, like, if you work things up with your brokerage, you get the right kind of account, you can go short on shares. Right. On shares. But yeah, so the interesting thing about this, which I've sort of found to be really remarkable perusing the uh, 
the massive posts on Wall Street Bets, the absolute insanity that has been taking over my computer screen over the last week, is that on one hand, these are people who are kind of intentionally playing up this kind of dumb guy poster role in order to do this stuff. You said earlier is that some of the humor on there is uh, not exactly something I would want to be involved in, but there is something kind of endearing about this sort of level of very clear self-deprecation in a way that's going on there because those guys are sort of posting as a character and they're kind of making fun of this kind of like, you know, a Wolf of Wall Street type of mentality, right? And that kind of betrays a sense that a lot of these guys do know a lot about the stock market. And in fact, to such a degree that one of the things that I think genuinely pisses them off, the stock market is, and our economy is intentionally been opaque and misleading for people and is sort of run not unlike how the mafia runs things and when i was reading about shorts and i was like kind of trying to understand this reminds me a lot of like on the waterfront you know tonight's not your night Mm. it's not Mm. because of you know a company's actual profitability um just as sometimes really profitable companies are not because of any inherent value that that company that company produces, it's simply because it's this other guy's turn to win. It's just really who can profit off of this, and that sort of drives a lot of these decisions. And uh, speaking to your point, is that video that's been making the rounds on Wall Street Bets of Jim Cramer doing an interview back in the day, where he discusses the tactics that he would use at his hedge fund to drive a stock down uh, inorganically. His fund would use their money to sell and then rebuy stock at a lower price and a lower price to give the impression that it's tanking. And he's hoping that that impression catches on. And then he would release a little piece of news that could be totally fake about how their competitor's doing well or something. And he's hoping that that picks up into an organic downward move so that his hedge fund, which has taken a short position, makes money. And um, in his example, he admits repeatedly that it doesn't matter how well the actual company is doing. The short term motion that they're manipulating is pure fiction and it doesn't matter. Mm. So the as you said, GameStop uh, was shorted over 100 percent um, of its uh, floated shares by Melvin Capital and also by like famous short sellers, Citron and other groups. The reason to our listeners that that matters is like if I go short one share of GameStop, That means I borrowed it from someone and I wrote a contract and I signed away my soul and said, no matter what, I'll give you one back by this date or under these circumstances. Worst case scenario, I'll pay a lot of money and I'll get it and I'll give it to you. And that probably means I lost if that if it goes up a lot and I have to pay a lot, it means I lost. But you can run into a real problem if you owe like more than you can actually get at any price. Because it's possible for people not to be able or willing to sell them to you. There aren't enough shares for you to get them back. If you're a short seller, if you sold short, you must make good on those. Those are very binding agreements you made. The reason that it's important that they went so high above the float is that that opens them to a nightmare scenario, which is called a short squeeze. And that is when I, I sold it when it was $3 and now it's 10 Oh, that sucks. I got to buy them back. So I'm losing a ton of money on each share. Let's say this is a low volume stock and me buying those shares has now moved the price up from $10 to 11 well, that means another short seller, they have a requirement that like, if it goes to 11, you got to sell because we can't lose more than that. Now they have to sell because it got to that price. So they're like, oh, this sucks. They lose all the money. And now the price goes up higher and now it's $15. And that triggers another guy to sell. And then that next guy has to sell. And pretty soon the price is up to like 400, 500, $1,000. It shoots way up because they are all triggering each other to have to rebuy to close their shorts. And they're moving the price up at the same time, which creates a feedback loop until everyone who had a short position has had to buy, which has driven the price way up. 
and they have paid through the nose. And essentially at that point, it no longer matters what the company is worth in, in its long-term outlooks because they will pay any price. You can name your price. You have what they need and they have to hand it over. Uh, that is the situation that currently exists with GME, according to many posters on Wall Street bets. And this did happen once before. I mean, there have been short many short squeezes in history, but the most famous one was uh, Volkswagen in 2008 when the short sellers shot the price way up uh, on, as there was some vague good news about it and they had to pay any price to get out of there. And it goes up parabolically real quick, This or I don't know, sharply uh, on yeah. the chart. And um, that is what someone on Wall Street Bets noticed was happening with uh, GameStop, that right. there was a lot of short interest. And so they thought maybe it can happen again. Well, I think that's an interesting point. And, it, and one of the things that actually got me so into this is following this in real time, but actually having the stock tickers up and seeing the way that the sort of events that were happening were affecting those stocks in real time. And I don't know how well I'm going to articulate this, much like the unobtainable joke. It was the first time in my life where all of this stuff didn't feel opaque at all, and I was actually floored by how transparent all of it is and how much it is a perfect a perfect encapsulation of the idea of it's a big club and you're not in it because what was actually affecting these stocks was exactly what you think the narrative around them how many people were buying them and how many people crucially could buy them and that kind of brings us to the, the sort of the, the main event uh about a month ago people on this message board message board jesus christ people on this subreddit started to email um, email chain right That's yeah people on this uh e email chain um were linking people to a geo cities website where you could uh <laughs> click on a uh, a midi player of the william pell <laughs> overture and <laughs> you could then by doing that i think somehow um get linked to an amv that someone made about like Evangelion. And, and that would lead to a flash game where you play as Goku <laughs> and you have to punch Melvin Capital. I, I remember it well from yeah. Newgrounds. <laughs> yeah, so these guys who were posting, I think, on the on, on E-Bombs World or something, <laughs> they, uh, uh, they started buying shares of GameStop. And obviously what this did was, over uh, the last month, has started to make GameStop's stock, which I think at the beginning of the year, I don't have the exact number, was around single to or small double digits um uh, i know last year it was like two or three dollars a share but i think by the by the time this started it was it was starting to go up a little bit and um there's a reason for that which we'll get into in a second um and uh, they started to over the last month people have been buying 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 and that has skyrocketed the the value of this stock. This subreddit has sort of blown up because of news reports about it, because of people's interest, because of what they're doing, because of how much money they've cost Melvin Capital. The first day that this started to become big news, um, it was estimated that Melvin Capital could be on the verge of bankruptcy because of this. They wound up getting sort of a bailout from uh, Steve Cohen, and um, they were able to stay afloat. And for the last week, it's sort of been watching a, a war between this between the subreddit. They've started to kind of jump onto a couple of other stocks like AMC and Nokia um, to kind of meme those as well because those were also heavily shorted stocks. And BlackBerry, I believe. And BlackBerry. Um, there's also some like real minor ones. There's some bench warmers in there like uh, Naked uh, and Build-A-Bear. 
Um, Build a Bear has been floating around on the uh, on the subreddit as well. But the, the I thought of, you made up that Build a Bear thing. Are you serious? I'm I am dead serious. You can track that in real time. Build a Bear has had a very good week thanks to this. Not anywhere near these these GameStop numbers. Um, so the key thing is that um, <laughs> um, the goal was to get GameStop to four twenty sixty nine, baby. The magic number. Um, and they did it. Um, it was very enjoyable to watch uh, all of the like buy orders and sell orders people had placed, which all ended in like as whatever combination of 420 and 69 <laughs> was possible. And so the ticker would would stay there for a long time as those buys or sells were filled and it stayed at that price. And uh, I guess their goal was probably also to get like legitimate news uh, companies to have to like have 42069 in the background for a long period. That's also been the really fun part of it is having to watch news organizations report on these Reddit users with a straight face as they like post quotes attributed to users with names like Thick Dad's Club. Like that's been my favorite part of watching this. And Wall Street Bets kind of has the same energy of the really early internet where it's uh, in some ways where it's not intended to ever appear in the real world, you know? Yeah. These are all people who just never intended to be read by some news anchor on an actual TV show. Those are just two completely separate worlds that shall never collide. So anything that propels them into the public eye is automatically funny just because of the fundamental incompatibility of the straight laced news anchor with, you know, Queef Burglar 69 or whatever. It's the <laughs> no, it's, WSB. It, well, yeah, it's like an alternate reality, right? Like it's like something just like a portal opened up. But this brings us to actually one of the big points that I wanted to talk about on the show and what happened. This has all been a lot of kind of like backstory onto like where we are. But there was a big event that happened on Thursday, which is that if Wednesday was a really insane day, Wednesday was the day when GameStop opened at its highest. AMC was starting to shoot up. AMC within a day went from being about three or four dollars a share to being closed out Wednesday at about like just under 20 bucks a share. Now, overnight, Robinhood, which is a stock trading app, which was started in 2012, their mission statement was to democratize stock purchasing. Um, but when Robinhood came out, it was kind of a big deal. On Thursday, Robinhood froze trading of AMC, GameStop, um, Nokia, and Naked. Uh, I think Build-A-Bear was left untouched for a while. That's because everyone knows Build-A-Bear is well-connected. Um, <laughs> Build-A-Bear has ties that go deep, deep into the financial world. Honestly, you, you can't go after Build-A-Bear and it's an open secret. It's, it's Build-A-Bear's world. We're just living in it. Um, and this obviously started to raise some pretty crazy questions that this thing called Robinhood could just literally prevent its customers from doing this. Now, the reasoning they gave is that they were trying to protect their customers against market volatility. Obviously, those swings started to happen when they stopped people from buying the stocks. And it was crazy to watch this. Like like that that morning, Thursday morning, I remember looking at the AMC stock and that it opened pretty much where it had left off. Like it, like it ended around $19 on Wednesday and Thursday morning for the first 10 minutes it like had opened at $17 and then it just tanked like went down by 10 bucks throughout the day real time as people were like I can't buy this I can't buy this and it was just going down 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 Robinhood's reasoning for doing that is very interesting because um Citron uh which uh I believe owns Melvin um, and is a big client of Robinhood's. And so obviously the, the big question that's being sort of posed is like, did you do this to protect your biggest client so that they could freely 
continue to short these stocks without any interference from what's called retail investors or i.e. regular people. I was going to say that uh, I found it very interesting that that move was made because um, when I first read the post by Reddit user uh, Deep Fucking Value, which is his <laughs> username uh, or Reddit name, whatever, I'm old. Um, he laid out the case that like GameStop is undervalued. There's a large short volume against it. I own a lot of shares. If people were to buy shares, it would cause it might cause a short squeeze. That was their original thread. Right. People laughed at them, uh, and then it you know they were borne out by later events. When I read that, I was thinking of all the other times when Wall Street Bets has had some sort of visionary post, and it has turned out to be complete crap, <laughs> um, or or ca- catastrophically blown up in the face of whoever proposed it. What was interesting to me. Uh, was the degree to which it would appear that the short sellers have reacted. Uh, I found it very interesting. Um, I I think my inclination was to think like, even if deep value is right, uh, the kind of loss that they might sustain the short sellers, I mean, as a result of deep value and a few other Wall Street Bets posters buying up shares doesn't matter to them. Mm -hmm. It would be like if a bunch of ants colluded to like steal one cookie from me and I'd be like, oh, wow, that sucked, <laughs> whatever. If it really didn't matter, I don't think we would have seen this kind of response from them. And I think it's kind of an instance of the Streisand effect where the apparent attempt to drop the price indicates that they are afraid and that perhaps it's emboldening people to buy shares of GameStop because it appears to be evidence that Deep Fucking Value's plan is working. So the, the move you're talking about where Robinhood froze buying but not selling Yes. Which I don't know if I've ever seen that before. For stocks get frozen occasionally during like frenzied trading, especially on cheap brokerages like Robinhood, where they, you know, uh, are not known for their reliability during huge crises. And this hasn't done them any favors either. Um, <laughs> freezing it only in one direction when the people who stand to lose are the big uh, hedge funds who may or may not have connections was very suspicious looking to most onlookers. Yes incredibly sus behavior from Robin Hood. Yeah, it's it's uh, very much the like um, when you're having an argument with someone and like, whatever, I don't even care. I don't even care. I don't even care. What did they say about me? What are they doing? Okay, I went to their house and I tapped their phone, but I don't even care. Honestly, I don't care what they say. They can say whatever they want. Like, that's the kind of vibe I get with the the press release that they had exited their short position. And of course, they want everyone to think that because right now people who are buying are buying uh, GameStop on the assumption that the short sellers might have to buy later. Usually when a price goes up like this based on a bunch of hype, it's a pump and dump. There's a big spike, suddenly a bubble. Someone realizes, oh shit, I no one's going to buy this dumb share I bought for $500. I need to sell it as soon as I can. And then eventually someone else is like, oh shit, I've got to sell. Oh shit, oh shit. And then there's a big drop. And it's, it's obvious that in that case, no new money is actually being generated. Everyone who plays is trying to bet they're not going to be the last one in the game of musical chairs. Mm-hmm. There's no real reason for a rational person to participate in one of those unless they started it. In this case, if the big, if the short positions are still on the hook, if they still need to buy the shares at any price, then people are reasonable to, to buy it at a high price, maybe, because maybe the person who's going to buy it from you is not another sucker like you. It's going to be the short sellers. So then it makes sense. That means if the short sellers could create the belief that they were already out, suddenly everyone who's in is like, oh no, this has just turned into a regular uh, pump and dump. I've got to sell now, which right. of course yes. is exactly what a short seller would want. Well, that's, yeah, no, you're totally right. That's that's actually the thing that's sort of sucked me in more 
is seeing the real-time effects that seemingly basic strategies that I think as a regular person, you're kind of told or convinced that, that the market is this almighty thing. It's this thing that you know, has so many complications to it. These things can't possibly affect it. But no, what's actually happening is like that thing you think is happening is exactly what it is. On Thursday night is that after hours, the stocks plummeted overnight. And, you know, the talk was that they're just trying to do this to make you think that this is no longer a valuable stock. So you get scared and you pull out. So, Sasha, like what you're saying, which I think is like the real key to it, is that it clearly cost hedge funds enough money. And they also clearly know that what these guys are doing can work in a way that they're sort of fighting back and using the massive amount of power they have and influence they have in order to do that, which just like you, when this first started to happen, I kind of ignored it because I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. Like, why would these guys really care about this? But in fact, they care quite a bit. And this is a this is a great example is that Thursday, these hedge funds lost like $70 billion. Now, Thursday was the day that they that Robinhood decided to prevent um, people from buying. And yet they still lost $70 billion. And I think that's what's so crazy about it is like that wasn't enough to course correct. You know, as of this recording, they haven't actually been able to make up or undo the damage that this has done. No, uh, basically, I, uh, like I'm with you, I'm just shocked that they appeared to actually care about the results and try to use, I mean, it's not clear provably yet that these like apparently dirty tactics are being done by the hedge funds, but it's plausible to me. And I think that it's not unreasonable to suspect they might. Just the idea that a short, sque- a short squeeze could be triggered like this. And um, as someone on Wall Street Bet said, and I agree with them, the amazing part about this is that it's not like it was some sort of dirty trick on the part of Wall Street Bets to say there's a ton of short interest. If you bought and hold it, you might trigger a short squeeze. To get into that position, these hedge funds that are shorting, they know they're taking a huge risk. Uh, they're like in um, Uncut Gems where yes. you are selling your diamond to someone and then telling the auctioneer that you'll have it to them later and planning to buy it back for less. And a couple of mobsters are coming to break your knees if you don't get them your winnings from a sports game that might happen. Like you get into this crazy situation where you owe more things than you have and you're kind of hoping you'll get them. And I think uh, when you go over 100% of the float on on short, like you have to understand on some level you're taking a huge risk. I think that essentially these are uh, organizations that have comfortably gotten away with this over and over and just kind of got complacent and assumed no one saw yeah. what they were doing. To me, the most interesting thing about this is not the the buy-in from normal people, uh, because that does happen. The interesting thing for me is the reaction of apparent fear and panic from the organizations. It's just shocking. I never thought it would happen. I think... Part of that, I I wonder, is because how much this reveals how, in a certain way, not opaque these uh, the way Wall Street works is. It's just that it's been designed to feel like that so people don't do this, essentially, or participate in it in the extent that they actually can. I don't want to say it's unrigged the game because I think one thing we can talk about is some some of this has been given a little too much credit as being like revolutionary action, which I don't exactly think it is. But I do think it's interesting the way that a bunch of people on a subreddit decided to buy into a handful of stocks, and just them doing that was enough to drive up the value of those stocks so that the shorts that had been taken out against them uh, became unprofitable for these companies. And 
that's it. That's actually what happened. Like it's it's not that complicated. On a, you know, once you get past the terminology, once you get past understanding the the mechanisms that were in place that make this world impenetrable to people, the actual action was very very uncomplicated. And I feel like that's so much of what the pushback about it is is that this thing that's supposed to be intentionally complicated has been revealed to be incredibly uncomplicated. And in doing that has also revealed the way that these people, i.e. the hedge funds, manipulate the market all the time. It's not okay to manipulate or rig the stock market if you're not the person who's supposed to be doing that. That these companies do that all the time. But as soon as a handful of people who just sort of loosely organize to effectively also manipulate the market, but this time to make GameStop appear profitable instead of being shorted, that's not okay manipulation. That feels like a lot of the the narrative around it, um, both the people who are praising it and the people who are trying to detract from it. And I think that kind of leads into a, another thing I wanted to talk about, which is the way that narratives around things are sort of shaped and created. Um, because earlier in the episode, you mentioned Jim Cramer, friend of the show, Jim Cramer, um, who I'm sure will come on in the next week. Um, and the way that he was talking about how, you know, he would like leak stories to the news or he would use the press to say like, oh, you know, this thing isn't actually that profitable. This isn't a good company. This company is going down and it would and that would affect the value yeah. of the share. And, and they would start short sell like they would do a thing at that time that was intended to drop the price slightly or they would even make it go up a bit to draw people in and then drop news so that the downward action would be more precise. I don't think he said he personally did it. I think he was speaking in a hypothetical of like, here's what I would do if I wanted to drop X price. But his, the example he gave is not very different from the kind of things that we see implicitly happening today. Yeah. It's really interesting the way that the narrative around this has been intentionally already shaped to kind of paint the Wall Street bets as like bad people for doing this. And as an example, there's so many examples. It's fascinating. Like I, I can't think of a less sympathetic entity uh, across all of society than the big financial institutions. No one is rooting for big financial institutions and hedge funds to win other than themselves. It's, it's a, it's a bipartisan issue to hate big hedge right. funds. Totally. It's, it's so funny. It's like, th these are, these guys are the most like stock villain characters you could possibly think of to the L point literally like, stock, literally villains, villains with yes. stocks. Any movie that you can think of like an action movie or a genre movie has had some version of a wall street guy or a finance guy or like a hedge fund guy as being the bad guy. Absolutely. The, it's such an iconic scene in any action movie that like the hero finally bursts into the boardroom where a bunch of people in suits have destroyed the lives of the common man. And they're like, enough's enough. Now it's a fist fight. Fancy yeah. man, bad, manly man, good. And then you throw them out the window. It's like, well, wait, hold on. And, you know, like they're holding on to their briefcase full of bonds or whatever. And just like go with the bonds and you'll live. Oh, never. I would rather die. And then, yeah, it's the rights itself. At least from a from a cultural narrative perspective, it is impossible to make these guys look like victims. And so what they have to do is find a way to say, yes, these guys are bad, but these other guys are just as bad and could be worse. And I think that's really fascinating because there's been a couple of things that were written in the last couple of days. One of them was, I think maybe it was Thursday morning or Friday morning. There was a front page of the New York Times um, there was an article, the Wall Street Bets guys, they described them as being motivated by a mixture of greed and boredom. <laughs> that's the exact one I was going to cite. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. I read that whole article, but I like stopped like dead in my tracks when I read that because I was just like, 
okay, like one, uh, what about the fucking hedge funds, right? Like what, like, hang on, like yeah. what aboutism is always stupid, but I think everything that's been written about the wall street bets guys is a, a totally appropriate example where you can actually say, yeah, but what about these other guys? Right? Absolutely. If there was ever a time for what aboutism, this is it. It's like if, if some kid off the street somehow was in a boxing match with, uh, you know, Mike Tyson at his prime and they were somehow winning. And then the article published something like kid off the street is violent, pugilistic, enjoys punching. <laughs> You'd be like, why are you reporting this? That's insane. First of all, both parties are in a boxing ring. Of course they are. And second <laughs> yeah. of all, you're talking about like Mike Tyson. What about him? It's, it's such a baffling <laughs> criticism. Then the top comment on the wall street bets thread where that uh, headline was brought up, is someone being like, oh, yes, uh, we're motivated by greed, unlike um, hedge funds who are famously motivated by love for humanity. And <laughs> yeah, right. I saw, yeah, I saw that too, right? Like the altruistic hedge funds. Um, and so there's a bunch of things that I feel like happened very, very recently. I had CNBC playing in the background because CNBC is a really key player in this because a lot of the, the live coverage of this was to find a way to paint it in the negative by reaffirming culturally accepted narratives about what is appropriate behavior within the economy and what the economy is supposed to do. Um, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post yesterday. It was almost like the point of this article was to try and like adopt a progressive aesthetic in order to speak reasonably to the people who might be cheering this on to convince them why this is bad. And this article... Uh, mostly makes the point of why there should be, you know, uh, uh, stronger taxes on uh, capital gains and on um, selling stocks. Right. Well, speak for yourself. You peasants tax my capital gains. What what will I use to pay my chauffeurs to manicure my feet? Think of the common man. Think of your comrade. <laughs> I my capital gains must not be taxed. But uh, th this is this is from this Washington Post thing. <laughs> the Reddit army didn't discover an investing secret. Just trust me. GameStop stock is not worth several hundred dollars a share. Neither is fucking Tesla. The value of these things are all inflated or they're deflated, depending on which is going to make you, the investor, more money. Uh, yeah, I think it's very hypocritical to say that like these randos um, inflating the value of a stock is somehow any different from anyone else doing it. And that does happen all the time. I think the stock market is super susceptible to manipulation in the short term. Uh, prices yes. can be driven up and down. I think in the long run, uh, Warren Buffett, who is, <clears throat> I mean, I, it's great to quote Warren Buffett. He is probably a prime example of the sorts of like ghouls we were discussing though. But he comes across <laughs> as a folksy grandfatherly person. Uh, he, he says in the short run, uh, the stock market is a voting machine, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine. In other words, in the short term, it depends on sort of a popularity contest, but over time, the long-term value of companies hypothetically converge to their actual value plus what they're expected to do in the future. And I don't think yes. that that's a, a law of the universe or anything, but I think it's generally true. So these these short-term crazy spikes and drops don't hurt uh, long-term investors very much, which is a lot of what I think the, the common person is, like pension funds yeah. and things like that. They tend to be, we buy a safe investment, we hold it for a long time, and we sell it in 20 years, kind of regardless of what it did. And although those you know, pension funds have been hurt by Wall Street tricks for sure, but I think that the common person is a lot less exposed to these 
evils than um, than it seems like at first glance when you when we're examining this. Yeah. For our listeners who can't see Matt, he's uh, fumbling in his pants to try and pull out his uh, telephone uh, ineffectually. He's got yeah. it looks like a chocolate bar now, and he's reading off the back of the label. <laughs> Uh, okay. Uh, corn syrup, sugar, uh, peanut byproduct, uh, <laughs> jello reduction. Okay. Jello reduction sounds like a Bond girl from when they're really scraping the bottom. <laughs> Maybe that's just. Me. Uh, um, you know what's funny about the Bond thing is, you know, one of the reasons why, uh, No Time to Die has been pushed back, it's not just because of the pandemic, it's because the Nokia products in it, the product placement in it are now out of date. So wow. if it was to come out now, they would be out of date products. So they have to do reshoots to update the product placement. So what wow. I'm saying is if you have Nokia product, hold it with those diamond hands. Do not let it go. <laughs> when no time to die comes out, Nokia is going to skyrocket to the moon, wow. baby. I guess, I guess I should short the bond market. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm dreadfully drawn. I'm one of you, the common plebeians. Do not touch my capital gains. I'm but a humble reptile man. (laughs) The chimney sweeps in my employ would be crestfallen if I were to lose my great piles of wealth. How many shillings can it cost to buy a frozen pizza from one of your troughs of slop you are fed? One, one shilling and tuppence, I know not, nor care I. Bah humbug. By the way, go see No Time to Die, featuring bread and circuses for you troglodytic mouth breathers. My Nokia stocks are waning. <laughs> um, you're really fitting into your new role as a New York Times columnist. Um, <laughs> this is an interview, right? <laughs> Um, I don't know if you saw this, but there was a guy on CNBC. I forget who he is. I think he's the head of a big hedge fund on Wall Street. And he was like literally like a bullfrog in a suit. He had no neck and he was just like, you know, a thousand years old being kept alive from like the just blood transfusions. He had that thing that the Emperor Emperor Palpatine had in the last Star Wars <laughs> yeah, movie, right. right? Like a big like mechanical thing going up his butt that kept him alive, if I remember. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he literally just said, I've had enough of this equality bullshit. Equality is just a way to attack the wealthy. That sounds like a guy you don't let in front of a camera if you're the <laughs> state. There is a, a weird, I mean, uh, this is a bit of a side note, but it is somewhat relevant. There is a weird, okay, if you go back a few hundred years and you look at like the high aristocracy, the kings and queens of European countries or any country, they tend to be quite removed from like the common folk because they've been inbred and and they're, they have lived a very odd life. They don't understand a lot of concepts that are just obvious and they seem like almost another species of people they're just very strange these very very wealthy scions of power and that still exists today i feel when you have the ultra wealthy people who are so wealthy that it would not be possible for them to become poor because they earn more interest on their wealth than they could spend at a reasonable rate and they still exist and we we see them less and less this is a point that i saw someone make actually in the powerpoint presentation yesterday They were pointing out how in uh, Parasite, it's harder and harder to come up with a situation where a poor person, a truly poor person, and an ultra-rich person are even going to be interacting. 
how you basically need to impersonate someone else if you want to interact with the ultra rich as a poor person. Hmm. And it's true. And we have sort of ghoulish, weird people uh, at the upper crust of society who are <laughs> desperately out of touch with reality. I'm reminded a little bit of uh, when Gwyneth Paltrow wrote an article, not to single her out, but Gwyneth Paltrow is a highly visible, out-of-touch, wealthy person. I have no ill will against <laughs> her personally. But she wrote an article on on gift buying, and uh, it was like gifts that your man might like, and one of them was like a, um, a custom-knit area rug valued at $10,000 or a bottle of room spray uh, valued at like $200. <laughs> Room spray is a product that I have never even heard of until she said that. And if someone offered that to me as a gift, I would just be baffled and confused. And I, I believe Gwyneth Paltrow may have been trying to give her honest, best attempt at advice, but it comes across very much to me as Lucille Bluth saying, like, how much can a banana cost? $7? Like, these are people who just don't exist in the same world as you. And having one of them go on camera to try to defend themselves to the the general public is the most hilariously bad idea I've heard in a long time. I was thinking about the Lucille Bluth thing the entire time we were saying this. I mean, that meme has kind of been, you know, shared ad nauseum. But I think that there's a reason for it. Like, it's not even a joke. It's just like a documentary. But the other thing I wanted to say, but as technology and as culture is developed it makes it a little bit harder to hide from it, right? Like when like when the new way of communicating is say you have to go and do a live stream or you have to go on at least go on television. You're you're running serious risks that people are gonna see how much of a fucking ghoul you are. Something that I think is a crucially overlooked element of like primarying candidates, like what AOC did when she primaried Joe Crowley in the Bronx, who is like, you know, an ensconced member of of the Democratic Party, you know, potentially next in line to even could have been Speaker of the House kind of thing, right? Jamal Bowman, who just recently won, whatever, whatever. We've, this has been kind of the news of the day, right? Is that, that there's been a handful of, you know, young uh, left or at very least progressive candidates um, primarying these people who have held office for 40 years. And I think one of the things that's has been so effective about that isn't just like the politics of it aside, what their politics are. It's that by primarying them, they have forced these people to have to come out into the spotlight. Most of these people lived in, you know, safe democratic districts. Most of these people um, have leveraged the power that they have to gain more power. Like they've literally just been reelected to office time and time and time again. Most of the people in those districts probably don't even know who some of those people are because they've never had to see them. And I think that what's so interesting is that the thing that every single one of those primaries has in common is that it forced the person who was being primaried to actually have to do a debate or like step out into the spotlight. And every time they did, they just put their fucking foot in their mouth. Like it was just an absolutely, you know, cringy and embarrassing thing to see these people who are nothing more than just being extensions of the science of power and helping those people right. keep their power and keep their money to just actually come out as like effectively be like just court fucking jesters. Well, at least that's a growth industry. They, they can, you know, get, get jobs as jesters afterward. Uh, what, what you're describing actually reminds me a lot of a phenomenon I read about um, last night uh, in a book about uh, game development, but um, it was the, something called the innovators dilemma, which is the idea that like when you're, when you're when no one has any expectations of you and you're a young upstart like firebrand uh candidate you can try something really interesting you can give people what you think they want and really like be authentic and that resonates with people and you can get into get into success 
And with a product, you then have the choice of like, do I keep improving my existing product and make a million spinoffs and sort of focus on what I'm, what I was successful at, but eventually become stale and out of touch and assuredly eventually lose your spot to a young upstart. And I think in a political sense, maybe that's part of what happens. You go from needing great interpersonal skills and great um, uh, ability to be in a debate, ability to be public de- publicly visible. That's your skill that gets you there in the first place. I mean, in theory. And then the skills that keep you there are your ghoulish, you know, deal-making abilities and the kind of things that don't really play well to the general public. And you start to become less and less presentable as you, you know, uh, go into a cocoon and come out as a hideous political pod person. <laughs> yeah, well, our research has shown that voters like fingers, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> oh boy that's very yeah man tim burton's batman uh penguin is extremely relevant to this conversation or even if he's not i'm gonna i'm glad you shoehorned him in it's yeah you gotta gotta fit the penguin in there um i think you're right i mean i think it's very easy to also kind of read this through a full lens of cynicism and just say you know uh wall street evil anyone who goes against wall street good um, we can't shine a light on the Wall Street guys because any visibility they have is bad. We got to focus on the Wall Street bet guys. And part of that is that, you know, the way they're doing that is to make sure that people, you know, don't get too ahead of themselves and don't think that this is somehow the special event and that anyone can be part of this and you can do this. You know, Wall Street knows better than you. These stocks know better than you. Just kind of shut up and, you know, go back to doing what you're doing. The other thing, though, that I, I was going to say about that is that the other really incredible phenomenon that I feel like has happened in the reporting of this, the more extreme version of this, which I joked to someone, I was like, oh, this is totally going to happen, and then it did, is because it's something that came out of Reddit, and that Reddit is obviously something that has taken up a lot of cultural space as being kind of, I don't know, maybe a little weird or toxic or like not great, that some people are saying that what's happening right now is the same as the capital attack and that it comes from the same place and that whether it's QAnon oh, or MAGA. That's, that's terrible. That's very irresponsible. Those are nowhere near each other. They're not near each other at all, right? And like this is a really, really dangerous road to go down. And I think I don't think it's working necessarily. I'm not sure that is going to work. But it is amazing how, you know, the same way that you can paint, okay, people, you say Wall Street, People automatically kind of go to like, uh, boo, hiss, right? But now if you say the internet or online, it's also very easy to, I think, people who don't engage with those platforms to go, uh, boo, hiss, right? Or at least be more susceptible to that. And so some of this sort of comparisons that are being drawn to try and make it seem like what these guys are doing are just the same as the fucking, it's the same as QAnon is absolutely insane. It's absolutely insane. I, I mean, okay, this is probably going to destroy my career, but I've been reading wall street bets posts for years and um, (laughs) they're guilty of many sins. They're guilty of like, they use ableist jokes that are absolutely not okay. They use language that could be construed as homophobic. I think most of them aren't, but they use that language. Absolutely. They're constantly making jokes about being cuckolds. It's their number one claim to fame is how cuckolded they all are. But I think there is also a distinct um, lack of hate on Wall Street bets, and their absolute number one value is humility and like self-loathing. Those are the two things that they'll do in spades and a kind of good-natured, fun self-loathing. I don't approve of a lot of the the jokes that grew up in that culture and stuff, but I would say that the general... Uh, vibe there is so different from what you would expect to find in any kind of like hate community or whatever or conspiracy community. Um, 
it's it's a completely yeah. unfair slander. I think if you want to focus on the slanders that are legitimate, like the ones I listed, uh, those are the ones I would absolutely back up 100%. They're not okay. They're immature. They're hurtful. Uh, but they're not. that's not what I've seen from the media generally. I've seen a much more serious attack, which is incorrect. Now, it's a huge internet yeah. community, and uh, so is their Discord server. And those places, you know, it's not exactly an exclusive club to post in Wall Street Bets. The reality of the internet is it's very easy to uh, falsely smear a group. Not that groups that are uh, smeared don't deserve it. They usually do, in my experience. But this is one case where I, I don't see it that way at all. And I think the media is relying on people's naivete and like out, being out of touch and being a, unable or unwilling to verify what Wall Street Bets actually is. And they're slandering them in that way. And, and to kind of and to sort of connect the dots based off of a bunch of signifiers we already have. You know, by this point, people are so sick of hearing about the Internet or the kind of people who exist on there. So if you're someone who has a very, very tangential relationship to this thing, you hear subreddit and automatically you kind of right. think, uh oh, someone got killed or some right. or someone plant or someone tried to plant a bomb in a stadium or something. Right. That it's very much playing off of those expectations in order to kind of delegitimize um, what these people have done and the reason that they've tried to do it. Now, this isn't to give them a super amount of credit. A lot of the people aren't, you know, communists or like radical socialists. They're people who a lot of them are actually like legitimate free market capitalists who are angry about the fact that they recognize that what Wall Street's doing is 100% not free market capitalism. So it's at least like a coherent ideology of saying like, no, in a free market society, anyone would be able to participate in this stuff and make money off these things. And it wouldn't just be an exclusive club who gets to kind of, you know, have their thumb on the scale all the time. Oh, it's it's absolutely an embarrassment to, to use these kind of like tricks to try to avoid um, the market reflecting the like, quote unquote, real price. Because I think if there's even one thing you could say is kind of noble or admirable or true about um, Wall Street hedge funds, that whole kind of like Ayn Rand, the beauty of the libertarian ideal or whatever, that's that's the one thing you could look at as at least they have a principle. But apparently they don't. Not even that because they're willing to like use the shut down one half of the trading app or whatever. No, they totally don't. I think that that's a big thing we could talk about in another episode because that's a whole other thing is the way that I think people often use ideologies a way to kind of just like create a little bit of a barrier around the terrible shit they're doing and saying, you know, because they can't actually just say we're doing this because we're evil. So they're going to be like, well, no, you know, if you read Ayn Rand, uh, yeah, I'm an objectivist. Sure, that sounds good because that helps me do the thing that I want to do. And you mentioned earlier that this is a sort of bipartisan issue, right? That like who wouldn't want to see a hedge fund get their comeuppance? And so well, the people who have kind of joined on to this, even if it, where it started with Wall Street Bets and a bunch of people who like like capitalism, they like the whole shtick, they want to do it. The, the people who have been drummed onto this are just like a full spectrum of different people. And I think that's actually the part of it that's maybe scary to the, the, the shambling corpses who, who have their thumbs on the scale or whatever, is that it's a pretty unified thing. They're all unified against a common enemy. So it's like, you know, whether you're like a democratic socialist or you're like a rightoid or you're a Bernie bro or whatever, I think everyone can lay down the sword a second and go, yeah, we have a common enemy here. Let's let's all buy GME and see what the, see how much this fucks with them. Yeah, I mean, it's totally true. Of all the different groups that have like clout online that fight against each other that are way across the political spectrum, I can't think of a more unifying cause than like a bunch of people taking down 
uh, fat cat hedge fund. That's probably something that they would be more in agreement about than like whether we should stop a meteor from destroying the earth. I think this is <laughs> yes. more likely yes. to get consensus from like the alt rights and the super left. Everyone would be like, yeah, but Wall Street uh, hedge funds, they suck. Absolutely. And, you know, a part of that is what we're talking about, the, the uh, cultural referent we have of them being the villains in every movie. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a way in which society um, was lagging behind the possible impact of social media. These mm. were rules that worked before that are vulnerable to a new thing and haven't adapted. Because I think if you went back in time 10 years and you took out a giant short position on someone, um, whatever. If somebody ran around town get it, putting out newspaper ads being like, say, fellas, we've got to sh- buy GME. We can make a short squeeze. No one would care. That wouldn't go anywhere. What What are you What are you going to call people and mail out postcards telling them to short GME? And that kind of, it didn't matter if like a crowdsourced movement could screw you over because there was never going to be one. And I think that mm-hmm. that kind of approach has stayed with uh, hedge funds taking out these giant shorts. And I think that they maybe just did things the way they always had, the way that worked, and maybe didn't weren't aware that a huge internet following uh, Twitter hashtags, whatever could, could rise up and draw in a serious amount of money from a serious amount of people to oppose you. And I think just mm. like politics wasn't ready for that kind of manipulation or that kind of movement spreading uh, legitimately or not, they, the hedge funds may not have been ready. And so this might've been the one time they were caught with their pants down, truly caught by regular people, which is part of what it makes it so appealing. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's, you know, one of the comparisons that's been made to this. And I think some of it's unfair because I think they're different things, whatever, is that, you know, early on, I think on Wednesday night, people were tweeting stuff like, you know, uh, these guys, these kind of like, you know, Reddit pranksters, these shit posters have done more to cause like actual material harm to Wall Street in 24 hours than like Occupy Wall Street did in yeah. like eight years. And, yeah. you know, I think I think that, you know, that's a that's an easy comparison. It's a cheap comparison. The maybe the reason for that is exactly what you're speaking to is that this is this and other things that we've seen that maybe aren't so great or whatever are examples of like, you know, truly a a a movement that is sparked from social media. The methods that we've seen for like or like, you know, organizational action or um, protesting or whatever are, you know, 20th century me- methods. Something like Occupy Wall Street is a very, you know easy thing to imagine in your head right it's a Mm. physical movement it's people using their bodies to occupy space um the way that all protests have when you think of a protest or you think of a a a march or anything that's what you think of so the idea that like well what does that look like in the 21st century what does that look like in a completely online space it it is i mean i'm too old to even imagine that at this point so like my brain is broken even trying to conjure that up. But I think that you're 100% correct that the thing about this isn't that like, oh, it's just more effective because they targeted their money or it's more effective because they used free market capitalism against the free market capitalists. It's just purely online. Uh, it's, you know, we've been seeing it in movies and media for a long time that, uh, you know, like the uh, man, why is the only example I can think of ghost in the shell? <laughs> the idea that the the virtual world is increasingly important and in many ways eclipses what happens in the real world. And this is a great example of that. What happened in the virtual world of people communicating and using simple tools of purchasing a stock, the most basic kind of trade you can make is just buy, buy and hold a share. That was enough to harm a big player and they weren't ready for a coordinated group of people to do it, is the narrative. Maybe it's true. Another thing that uh, was believed to be 
done by the hedge funds is the popularization of other ticker symbols on uh, Wall Street bets. So a lot of people started talking about AMC and uh, BB and all these other ones, Nokia. And uh, some of these had short interest and some of them didn't. And it's a really critical point that the ones that don't have short interest, those are just effectively pump and dumps. And so a lot of people thought that every ticker other than GME being mentioned was itself a scam uh, by the hedge funds. Because by getting the retail investors like us don't have much money, um, by getting us to spread it out, they were protecting themselves, which is a really interesting hypothesis. With that comes uh, figures who are trying to uh, piggyback on the visibility of these threads about GameStop and related short squeeze threads. So there's a lot of cryptocurrency uh, moguls who are trying to mention their cryptocurrency to try and pump it up or for whatever reason. There's a lot of billionaires who I think are thinking of running for office or whatever who have become inexplicably quote unquote popular on these threads and seem to have a lot of grassroots supports from Wall Street Bets posters. By the way, the membership of Wall Street Bets has exploded tremendously recently and um, and a lot of them are, I'm sure, are interested people who are real, but a lot of them are bots who are there posting the, simil- the same message over and over because there are a lot of people in there who are just trying to publicize themselves, who are trying to, to associate themselves with this in any way they can to get visibility. And uh, it's, you know, be careful. There, This movement, even if it was started for noble reasons, and I, I believe it probably was, is now trying to be co-opted by a lot of slimy characters or people who are mm-hmm. using it for their own personal gain. One of them was uh, a silver um, ETF, uh, uh, yes. something that trades in silver. And uh, as I found out just now, looking on Wall Street Bets, apparently the fifth largest owner of uh, the silver ETF in question is uh, Citadel's Citadel Advisors Limited Liability Corporation, who are the oh, ones wow, who are that's the insane. So it's that lends a lot of credibility to the conspiracy theory, quote unquote, that that it's uh, the short sellers who are popularizing these alternatives. Because if you were buying SLV hoping to right. squeeze them, quote unquote, you would actually be giving them money yeah. <laughs> effectively to use to get out of the other problem. So it's very funny that that would be the case. That's yeah, that's really, really good. And it's also like one of those things that it doesn't seem impossible, right? Like, I mean, Wall Street Bets is a public forum. You know, I mean, I this time I know it's not actually a forum. I know it's a subreddit, but by being a subreddit, <laughs> it's quite literally a public place where people are talking about this openly. Anyone can, can join. It's that. not an exclusive. I joined it a couple of days ago to keep track of everything. I also got that wrong earlier, by the way, that it, it is Citadel that is a big investor in, in Robinhood, not Citrion. Um, ah, okay. Th- that, that makes more but, sense. Yeah. That like, you know, it, it, it's conspiratorial as that might seem, uh, you know, it, 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 that, that just seems like an effective strategy to try and get people's interest away from this or see that people who are new to it, maybe trying to tap into the next big thing, hoping that, <laughs> that build a bear, or in this case, a uh, silver is going to be the next GameStop. And I think that's where, you know, the optimist in me or whatever is curious about the effect it's going to have is that people trade stocks to make profit. But as soon as that profit motive gets taken away from it, and it's like, you're just doing it to fuck with people. It become the risk just kind of disappears because you've already taken that risk. You know that like it's not about whether you win or lose any money. It's that by buying into these stocks, no matter how much you can buy in, then you're more likely to do it, right? And I think that's that's what the strat like the going back to what you were talking about, about why the hedge funds would even care about this or the strategies that the hedge funds have implemented are things to make people think that they're going to lose money, that the stocks are no longer profitable, that they're dropping. But in order for that to work. You have to assume that everyone doing this cares 
about right. that. And I think we've gotten to a point where it seems like, I'm sure some people do, but the whole point, you know, you mentioned the lost porn thing, right? This is already a group of people who is kind of like, who are kind of shitposting the idea of stock buying to begin with, caring about making a profit. Right. If you care about making a profit, then you're on the wrong subreddit. <laughs> And they'd be the first ones to tell you. Like their joke is if you lose at least $10,000, they'll make you a moderator because you've clearly <laughs> proven your competency. Moderators, please mod this guy. He lost a hundred grand because he misunderstood how calls worked. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Yeah. And so that's what I'm curious about going into the second week of this is, is where that mentality is going to affect or not affect anything is that they're attacking it from the perspective of like, we have to convince them that they're going to lose money. But None of these people care about that. That's a really good point. This is a case where the normal assumptions underlying the market are that the price discovery, in other words, the price that ends up happening when everyone participates is going to reflect reality because the participants who want to make money and the participants who want to avoid losing money are going to meet in the middle and get to the real price. And it, uh, to some extent, doesn't really consider uh, a sort of like ideological shift like this. But this is the first time that it's been sort of a big activist movement that I've seen on such a scale. And it is going to be interesting to see what comes of it. I, uh, speaking though of like uh, the profit thing, one of the, to me, one of the sweet spots of this is that uh, it is possible in this one case, hypothetically, for the regular Joes who buy one share to really actually come out ahead. There is going to be a period, if their theory is correct, where the short sellers are squeezed and have to buy come hell or high water. And if the people who are holding at that point do sell at the right time, they will get out and the ones holding the bag with the shares that will plummet to nothing are going to primarily be short sellers. So there is even, if that theory is correct, and I, I don't think that's exactly what's going to happen, but it's hypothetically possible, then, the, if the, then it is going to be the big uh, hedge funds that take all the fallout from this and the, the little guy is yeah. going to be okay and make money which would be, you know, I'm all for it. Uh, the reality is it's not going to be so clean. The stock market has a long history of proving people wrong in the worst way possible. People who say, oh, there's no way X will happen. X has a way of happening. It has a way of embarrassing people who make predictions, including us. So I look forward to being surprised by what happens, hopefully pleasantly surprised. I think what I think the change that we're likely to see well, likely is a strong word. The change that I, an alternative change to people being restricted is that hedge funds are not going to go so far short anymore. In his book, yeah. The Black Swan, Nassim Taleb talks about um, a certain style of investing. In his case, he's talking about like index investing and, and buying the market. He talks about that as picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. And what he means is it works every time you make a consistent profit until one day you don't. And that one day you don't is so bad, it makes up for all the other days it did and you lose everything. And that right. is what these firms are doing by short selling something to such a high volume. Um, I think they're just gonna stop doing that. I think that we're gonna see short volumes go way down by big firms who are worried about this. And in the future, they'll use a different strategy. They'll spread it out across more symbols. They'll have more hedges in place to get themselves out in case it happens. I think that's probably the future we're gonna see. And I think that that's the best future it's reasonable to hope for uh, in that that doesn't involve any harm coming to the ordinary person that isn't already happening. Yeah, no, and I think I think I think that's totally right. I will say that Wall Street Bets is getting a lot of unfair sort of love as being like a revolutionary body, and I don't think that that's quite right. I mean, 
you know, Sasha was saying earlier about how, um, you know, the, the market has a funny way of kind of course correcting or doing the unpredictable or whatever you think is going to happen isn't exactly what's happening, including the fact that already, you know, BlackRock is a huge investor in GameStop. So if anyone's made the most money out of this, the easy it is to point to the dude on Wall Street Bets who made $22 million. BlackRock has made far more. So the house does, in fact, always win. But along the way, some kind of really cool things have happened. And Outside the humor of it and reading about, you know, people just posting insane shit like I'm dropping out of college with six rocket ships around it. I think the most heartwarming part of it has been reading the people who have actually been able to, for even a couple of days, game the system enough to have their lives be kind of changed. And one of the ones that I, I really liked was this dude, um, they posted a, a little blurb of how much they had and they, they made $64,000. And they wrote, uh, I can now write my mom a check and put my sister through Lyme's treatment. This has been a very rough year, but I'm so thankful for every single one of you. I think that that's, a pr that's as good a place as any to, to end off. I guess we'll leave it there. Yep, we'll leave it there. Uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure discussing it with you. This was a lot of fun to talk about this. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and uh, we'll see you next time. See you next time. Shooting at some food Went all over